Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning I'm going to continue on with our sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And I don't know how this series has been for you, but it is messing me up in a really good way. Normally, the burdens I feel in preaching are about delivering the sermon, but on this series, God is whacking me in my soul week after week after week. And each week I'm like, oh good, here's one that I don't have a struggle with. I'm going to preach to other people. And then by the end of my study, God's like, no, I've got a problem with this too. I've collected the whole set so far. I don't know about you, but so far I'm seeing elements of each of these deadly sins in my life. And I'm surprised by that. I guess I shouldn't be. That shows you that I'm prideful, which is one of the first ones. But I really thought that with this one, I'm going to be okay. And I'm not. (laughs) And I hope that you will receive this with an open heart. And it isn't going to go in the directions that you might naturally predict. It may start in that place, but very quickly you'll see that gluttony is about quite a bit more than food. Gluttony is, first of all, an issue of the heart and the spirit. And that's where we will really park this morning. But when we talk about gluttony, The Desert Fathers and over the history of the church, the most obvious place to begin is with the overconsumption of food. And the truth is that most societies over most of human history did not have this problem except for the wealthiest nobility, simply because even if you wanted to overeat, you just couldn't do it. There just wasn't enough food in your home to do it. The invention of the modern grocery store and of all this genetically modified food, refined sugar, all these ways to create cheap, convenient, tasty, but non-nutritious food has put food in super abundant quantities at arm's reach for most people in the developed world. And as a result, it's possible every time you feel the sensation of hunger to scratch that itch before it settles. It's never been this universally possible in any culture until in recent years in the developed world where food has become so affordable. Do you know that even as, as recently as the 1950s, most Americans, it was like eating meat was not a once-a-day thing. We're, like, we're doing well if we just eat meat one meal a day. It was a once-a-week thing if you were blessed. Eating meat was a special occasion. It would be like, oh, we're going to have roast today. And instead of going, roast again, everyone would go, oh, my gosh, roast, meat, protein. That's how rare it was to eat. In the ancient world, before we refined sugar, if you wanted to taste something sweet, you'd have to wait until your father stumbled upon a beehive or a tree with ripened fruit. There was no 7-Eleven with a bag of Skittles. Skittles, I, I mentioned because I'm discovering that's one of my gluttonies. I have a supernaturally strong draw towards the purple bag of Skittles, the berry one. Red one, I could give or take, but and the sour one, never mind. There's no way I'll eat that. But that purple bag is like my kryptonite. And when I see it, it's like I'm, I'm buying power pellets for the future. I just buy one and stick it in my car just in case I need Skittles. It's never been this possible to just keep eating every time we feel the sensation of hunger. According to the Centers for Disease Control, of us are obese. Uh, This morning, I weighed myself because I had not been able to play sports for the last two months. Thank you, Dr. Huey. Um, And so I've just been putting on a little weight. And this morning, I tipped the scales across the board. I've always hovered right between healthy weight and overweight. The next region up is obese. Uh, And so I've now entered the overweight category. To give you a sense of scale, 
a BMI greater than 30 for a person my height would make me 186 pounds. So I would be obese if at my height I were 186. And that means nearly half of us in our country have fallen to that obese category. Collectively, we spend $60 billion a year trying to shed the weight that is a result of overconsumption of food. $60 billion. That is a staggering amount of money. Obesity-related illnesses have a health care cost of $190 billion. That's one-fifth of all medical spending is to address issues related to our overconsumption of food. And I, I say that all just to say to us as a whole population, whether that's a struggle for us now or it will be at some point in our lives, that we have, in general in America, an unhealthy and broken relationship with our food. That's just the bottom line of it. We don't get figures like that unless we are misusing food for something beyond nourishment and simple pleasure. It has become symbolic for something else. And we're going to look into what that might be. But I also want to challenge us on this. We start with food because that's the most obvious place of gluttony. But today, I don't think it's the most common place where you find gluttony in our society. I think that we are over-consuming everything. We are in a hyper-consumption era where consuming is our full-time job. So let's start with the nature of gluttony. And I want to explore with you what exactly is gluttony about? How do we describe it? The most obvious place to start is an excessive consumption with respect to quantity. It is simply this. It's consuming something far beyond that point where it's appropriate or necessary. And I don't want to be one of these people who is kind of priggish and just says, you know, like, you should never have any delight or do anything not necessary. That would put me in a a padded room in a straitjacket. Like, part of the, the delight of life is to enjoy certain things. And we don't always have to stop exactly when we feel sated. It is a delight once in a while to eat that, that second little bite of cheesecake just because. That's one of the things that make us smile and adds a little spice to life. But gluttony takes place when you cross that boundary consistently, where each time you sit down to consume something, your drive is to go well beyond what feels appropriate. We have that conversation all the time at our house around video games. And when Jeannie's done yelling at me, she turns her attention on the kids. So, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the whole point is we are in a hyper-consuming moment. And with food, gluttony is about not savoring or enjoying or delighting in or using food. It is just about a mad desire to feel full of something. We use words like inhaling, shoveling. Hoovering, guzzling, even snarfing. That's a word I didn't... Snarfing is a a real word now. It's when you don't even chew, you just go... You just swallow like a snake. And I've eaten that way many times. I don't know what... I I, I I never served in the military. I didn't grow up with eight brothers, but I eat like someone's chasing me. I eat like it's a race. Usually, when I go out to eat with people, I'm done before they're halfway done. And I don't know why I eat like that, but some days when I'm really hungry, I just shovel it in. And I, I know, as someone with a science background, that if you eat slower, you can eat less. So knowing that, I sometimes I'm in a mad dash to shovel it in before I actually feel full, to hack my body, to trick myself just a little bit. When's the last time, though, that you use the word binge to relate to food? When you hear the word binge, what do you usually think of next? Netflix. That's right. That's right. Wait, I didn't have to say it. It's just like Xerox or Kleenex are trademarked brand names that have become normal words. Binging is almost never about food anymore. We binge Netflix. We stream and while we stream, we also binge on food. That's, 
One of the most delightful moments for us is when we have our favorite snack lined up on the desk and we have nothing on our schedule and we have our Netflix list queued up and we're like, oh, I'm going to have me some me time right now. Don't talk to me. Don't call me. That may be the only time we put our phones on do not disturb mode is when we are chilling with Netflix. (laughs) I'm telling you that we are in a binge-oriented society. When we look at things beyond food, here's one of the shocking stats I put. By the way, have you ever seen this? <laughs> this is, I, I tried to find a clip to play and I couldn't. There's nothing appropriate from this scene that I could show you in church. But it's one of the most vivid portrayals of the spirit of gluttony I've ever seen depicted on film. It, this is Mr. Creosote from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. I'm just going to warn you now, don't Google it unless you have a very strong constitution. He is a man who eats and eats until, well, (laughs) if you're strong enough, I dare you, look it up. At the end, he's undone by a little chocolate wafer that's only a wafer thin. The results of that last little wafer of chocolate are devastating. I'm warning you now, don't write me hate mail, it is not for the faint of heart. But if you have the courage, look it up. It is such a vivid portrayal. But that is not the only picture of gluttony that we see in our society today. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that on average, the American adult age 15 and older spends a staggering 5.3 hours a day in leisure and entertainment activities. That shocks me. But then I actually tracked some of my leisure activity And I can see why we're all contributing to this ridiculous statistic. Some of us are contributing way more. We're throwing off the curve. But the truth is, all of us, if you actually track the amount of time you spend on leisure and entertainment, I think you will be shocked and dismayed at what you find. And here's why I think that's so shocking. I'm not sure that all of us honestly even put in 5.3 hours of honest hard work. You may be at work physically for eight hours or more a day, but are you really putting in an honest 5.3 hours of hard effort where you work? If you are, God bless you, don't feel insecure. But I think many of us wouldn't add up 5.3 hours of serious labor every day, and yet that's how many hours a day we're playing. That doesn't feel like play that's necessary to stay sane and healthy. Play that is a necessary valve to release tension. It feels like play that has become a purpose in itself. Play and consumption that has become an addiction, not a blessing in our lives. And that's even further shown in the imbalance because we on average spend 35 and a half minutes a day in quality, non-screen connection time with our families. Some of us are like, 35? Which families are doing that? That's impressive. (laughs) If you look up to 35 as a goal to shoot for, that's the trouble we're in. Is families go off to their own spaces with their own screens, and they enter their own worlds. They don't even talk to each other. 35 minutes a day. So excessive consumption of quantity is obviously an issue for us. But there's another side that the Desert Fathers really understood, that it wasn't just about the quantity, which is an easy thing to lampoon and and criticize, but there's also this excessive pursuit of the pleasure that is associated with overconsumption. At some point, it's not even the food itself. People who are hoovering down food barely taste it after the first bite. But it's about the feeling of satiation that comes when there's an emptiness or a hollowness and you shovel it in and that feeling goes away. That's the real reward that we're after. It's the same way when a person overuses alcohol. There's a certain point, a familiar sensation you're going for, a numbness, a forgetfulness, a mindlessness that you're waiting for because of something else. That's what we want. And we are no longer enjoying or savoring. It's about pursuing a certain kind of pleasure that we are training our hearts and our bodies to recognize. Here's the thing, though. Pleasure in itself is not a problem. It's not a moral wrong. 
Pleasure, in fact, is part of God's design for creation. The more we're supposed to do a thing, the more inherent pleasure God baked into that thing. That's why eating is necessary for life. Sex is one of the things that propagates our race, that bonds marriages together. They are necessary things. And that's why the more, and Augustine said this, the more that something is natural or necessary for human life, the more pleasure God already baked into that thing so that we will be motivated to seek it out and to do it. But there comes a point in which God's natural design, look what he says in the creation account. He made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground and look at how unnecessary these features are. A NASA engineer would be like, why does it have to be beautiful? I don't understand. And why does it have to taste good? If it delivers nutrients in the leanest possible form factor, that's what we're after. That's how engineers... So who was it that said, um, we need engineers, but we don't want... I want to live in a world with engineers. I don't want to live in a world of engineers. I'm sorry if you're an engineer. Don't be offended. What we mean is there is a world beyond mere function that God created. Beauty and deliciousness are non-essential factors to food, and yet he put those things in there as a tangible way for us to feel that he loves us, that life is good. And that pleasure we draw from consumption of things is a part of the natural way we're supposed to receive it. It is a good thing. The problem arises when the pleasure that is a part of it is exceeded and we begin to pursue just the pleasure and not the giver of the gift or the gift itself. Augustine said it this way, virtuous people avail themselves of the things of this life with a moderation of a user. (laughs) That's interesting because the user has a very different connotation today, but he just met somebody who is using something to gain utility and they receive the pleasure of it as one of the fringe benefits, but not with the attachment of a lover. It's okay to love cheesecake but it's not, I don't know if it's okay to have a, a screensaver on your computer of cheesecake, to only meet people at the Cheesecake Factory, to daydream about cheesecake. At some point, that thing which delights us becomes an object of adoration and commitment. We're not supposed to be devoted to the pleasure. We're supposed to receive that pleasure as a tangible manifestation of God's love for us. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is describing what life in the world will look like near the end times. He's describing the flagrant, rebellious sin of human beings throughout the end times. And he gives this huge list, which frankly describes modern America. But mark this, he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, check. Lovers of money, check. Boastful, proud, abusive, check. Disobedient to their parents. <laughs> All the parents are like, check, check, yep. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. That doesn't just describe our government describes us. Treacherous, rash, conceited. And get this, he lumps this into the list. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, he says, acknowledging pleasure is a moral good, but becoming a lover of pleasure sends us down a road that is not so good. In fact, he even suggests that to love pleasure leads us inexorably towards not loving God. You may say that's a false argument that doesn't, I've watched it happen in my life. And if you're self-aware and honest, I think you'll find that it happens in your life as well. It is really hard to sustain an equal love for pleasure and for God because so often in this broken world, to love God requires turning our backs on pleasure of suspending that addiction I have to satisfying every desire and craving and appetite I feel. 
Do you know that Reed Hastings is not your friend? Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, is not your friend. What kind of evil mind decided that when you're watching a series, they wouldn't even give you the choice of pushing the next episode? It used to be you would click it so you could watch it, and you and your wife would stare at each other and go, one more? And you would feel guilty as you clicked it. Now, if you just passively don't decide for 15 seconds, it plays for you. I think that's satanic. While you're deciding, it chooses for you. And we become lovers of that pleasure, that dopamine hit that we get whenever that thing starts up. Do you know I have a Pavlovian response to certain TV show theme music because it reminds me of when I binge watched the whole season. It was like, oh, there it is. And I remember the excitement of a new episode starting up. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen now to these imaginary people who don't actually exist in this fictional story while I check out of the real story, the drama of my own actual life? I don't want to demonize entertainment. But I don't think we're in any danger as a culture of demonizing entertainment. I think we're actually in danger of worshiping it in the way that God is meant to be worshipped and devoted to. And here's the other side of this. It shows us that it's not just those who are corpulent who are gluttons. Some of the thinnest people you know are gluttonous. Because their commitment, their gluttony, is not to quantity, but to quality. Nonetheless, it's about the pleasure. I know people who are thin, but they will never let spam cross their lips because it's beneath them. I only eat five-star grade A organic, chopped whatever, sirloin, top cut. It's It's that impulse as well that represents the heart of gluttony. I won't eat there. Ew, sorry, if that's where you're meeting, I'm going to pass. That's a heart that also describes gluttony. It is a disproportionate commitment to pleasure in one form or another. That's the nature of gluttony. But I want to explore a little bit what it costs us when we give in to this impulse. The cost of gluttony includes bondage. Here's one thing I've learned in 50 years of life. When I love something so much that I can't get enough of it, it owns me. When I could say of anything, I could never get enough of this. It owns me. You know, part of the reason that I'm 51 and I still like candy is because when I was growing up, my parents didn't really let us have a lot of candy. And I was really ticked off about that. I remember having this thought as like a six-year-old. When I'm an adult like them and I control my own money, I'm going to fill my bathtub with candy and just eat whenever and how much I want. No one will ever. And every time I walk into a convenience store or a gas station, that thought actually crosses my mind. I can buy it if I want to. It's my money, whatever. I'll buy six bags if I want because it's my money. It's this unfinished business of wanting something, having it denied from me, and then now, like, a vengeance. I will have as much as I want. No one will put limits on me. And as I take control of that, the irony, the cruelty of life is that that thing which I control starts to control me. You think you're in control, just like some of the best um, movies with a plot twist where you think you're winning, you're winning, you're controlling, only to find out you've been played the whole time. That's at the heart of every good heist movie, is it works because the people doing the heisting are leading someone else to believe that they're being taken advantage of. Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, everyone's toil is for their mouth. In other words, the NLT says, everybody labors all day scratching for food, but no matter how much they do that, their appetite is never satisfied. That's a haunting phrase. Their appetite is never satisfied. I think what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is that because we are more than just physical beings, every physical satisfaction is only at best temporary. You know, think about the last amazing meal you ate. I remember on Jeannie's birthday... I took her to an irresponsibly, recklessly expensive gourmet meal at a restaurant called Jung. We had the chef's tasting menu. I had never spent so much money on one meal. I was like, this better change my life. And I have to say, 
It was probably the best meal she and I ever experienced on this earth. And yet, as the golden-tongued ancient preacher John Chrysostom said, no matter how much luxury you add to your life, it's only a multiplication of feces. That meal was a way to take $200 and convert it into a bowl full of poop. Now, I don't mean to belittle the experience. What I'm saying is that meal changed my life for an hour. But the next day, I was starving again. That's just the nature of it. I wish that a meal that good would keep me satisfied for like six days. Then I could distribute the cost over the days saved. It would be awesome. I'm not hungry yet. Are you? That's amazing. And yet the next morning, I'm like, are there pancakes? I wanted cereal. That's the way hunger works. Think about the dream vacation. We just got back from the best vacation I think our family's ever had. And the very next day, what does, I miss Cancun. It was an amazing experience, and yet the day it's over, you want it again. I want to go back. Golfers, think about the perfect round, of, the best round of golf you ever played. Did it make you want to stop? Were you like, I'm going to hang up my clubs? That was the best round. What about movie fans? I think about Zoe, who is, if she gets a tattoo ever in her life, it's going to be the Avengers logo. I guarantee you. And how we long for and wait for the release of that movie that we've been waiting for and waiting for. And then you're at the theater and the credits roll. And as the credits are rolling, as the stinger finally plays, there's this hollowness that fills you. Hurry up and make another one. Hurry up and make another one. See, everything that satisfies on this earth satisfies for a while. That's the heart of how it works. And the bondage comes because there is this principle called attenuation. And attenuation works this way. When you overexpose yourself to a signal, the effect of that signal dissipates over time. Say what? It sounds too schooly. Meaning this, if you do too much of something, it stops feeling as good over time. You know how like the first five minutes of a massage are like, oh man, that feels awesome. Next ten minutes, you're asleep. You can't even stay awake to enjoy it. Maybe it's because it feels so good, but after a while, everything that feels good doesn't feel as good. And so when we love that feeling and we want to chase it, what happens is we're left to to have three options. We either increase the frequency, I'll do it more. We'll go on eight vacations a year. How's that? But eight vacations makes you long for nine vacations. There's no end to the black hole of human desire. And so then we try to increase the intensity. We're no longer ever going to Wisconsin Dells again. From now on, Cancun's our basement. We're shooting for Maui someday. And after Maui, eventually we'll end up in the Maldives. (laughs) Oh, on an above-the-water villa. You see how it goes? If you can't just increase the frequency, if that's not getting the hit enough, you increase the intensity. Let's really kick it up. Bam! Kick it up a notch. And if that doesn't do for you, you increase the novelty. Let's do something really weird. We're going to vacation in a, in a giant treehouse above the Amazon rainforest. That'll be so weird. And after a while, you're like, this treehouse sucks. <laughs> it's so humid, so many bugs. But you think that if you just make it weird enough, different enough, novel enough, that will get your heart going. And it will that time. But have you noticed that everything gets old really fast? I didn't think I was ever going to get used to my new car. Every day for the first month, I'm like, I love the Civic so much. Yesterday, I found a big ding in the, in the trunk. I'm sure one of my kids did something, dinged it. I was like, whatever. <laughs> I never thought I'd feel that way about my car, but I do. It's just a car again. I really didn't think I would get there with this car. I cherish this car, but it's just a car. The bondage is that as you love the pleasure, it's all you can think about. Everything else becomes a necessary evil to be endured. Clean up your room. All right, all right, all right. Now I'm done. Can I go back to my game? Mow the lawn. All right, all right, all right. Can I go back to my game? Do your homework. All right, all right. And everything is rushed through, done hastily. 
a necessary evil to be endured so that I can get the hit that the addict needs again. I don't want to be with the family, but if you're making me, I'll sit here with the family. Fine, I finished. Can I go now? Why? Because one thing dominates your entire heart. I want that pleasure. That's all I want. Everyone leave me the heck alone. And you become enslaved to that thing above all the other things that you actually do love and care about. I'm going to run out of time if I'm in a hurry, so let me move on. There's another cost of gluttony, and that's malnutrition. That doesn't seem like it should work that way, but gluttonous people are starving. We're created as more than physical beings, which means in addition to the physical hungers that drive us, we have a deep spiritual hunger that has to be acknowledged and fed. God designed us that way, and sometimes if we don't find our way to spiritual nutrition, sustenance, we will seek to satisfy that deeper hunger with lesser things that are readily available. It's just like, you know, when you know that a big meal, a fancy party is coming, but it's coming at 7 p.m., and it's 2 p.m., and you're hangry, right? So what do you do? You go in the pantry, and you're like, I'll just take a nibble. By the time you're three-quarters of the way through that can of Pringles, you're like, huh, I'm not that excited about dinner anymore. My, my family members all do this. It drives me insane. I'm like, can't you just deny yourself? We're about to spend a lot of money on dinner. Why do you need a pre-meal? Just hold off. You'll enjoy it more, but it just doesn't seem to be in the playbook. <laughs> when you have a serious hunger that is going to be met with a serious meal and you nibble on lesser things, what happens is hunger is finite. You can't be infinitely hungry, really. At some point, when you fill that hunger, it doesn't matter if you filled it with quality food or garbage, the hunger starts to wane. You lose your appetite when you eat something. Everything you consume ratchets down your appetite. And if you eat lesser things, you can still feel less hungry even for that deeper longing in your soul. Jesus said in John 6 about himself, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In other words, there is a kind of human life that cannot be sustained by earthly things. There is a way to be alive with air coats, but still dead. That's what the zombie fascination depicts so beautifully, is you swear they're alive, but they're actually walking dead. Because there is a life that looks like movement and hunger and chasing, and then there's a life that's actually real life. Which of those two kinds of life does a zombie have, class? This is the way it works. is that Jesus said there is a kind of life, a dimension to human life, that cannot be fueled by anything that fuels the body or the physical being. There is a layer of life that you have to fuel with real spiritual food. And he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, whoever draws that nutrition from a real relationship with me and with my words and with my offer of salvation, that person will actually have a life that rises up from inside. And I will raise them up at the last day. Why? Because he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Sometimes the glutton who is binging on everything he can touch, everything she could reach, is actually desperately trying to feed a hunger that scares them and they don't know what to do about it. A yearning for love, for worth, for meaning, for redemption, for change. And it's not happening no matter what they do and it terrifies them. Some of that yearning is dependent on the obedience of other people. Why won't you do what I need you to do? Why won't you come towards me? And why won't even God approach me? And it scares us to face that. And so we reach for something convenient. We say, at least if I do this, I will feel somewhat satisfied. Pastor and author Frederick Buechner puts it so poetically. Listen to how he's, this is one of my favorite quotes ever. A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. I think that's exactly at the heart of gluttony, is that I'm opening the fridge trying to feed my soul. And what's really desperately hungry 
is my spirit. But we're not really sure how to feed that spirit. And so we take the easy way out and we feed the body, the eyes, the fingers. If you're guilty of gluttony, I want to tell you that your issue is not just a failure of self-control. I think that belittles the struggle. It's not just that you don't know how to say no. That can really be a disservice to someone who is starving to death in their spirit and actually needs help connecting to that. Being shown how to feed the hunger that's really raging. We should not characterize a glutton as simply an undisciplined person with no self-control. Because the glutton is desperately hungry, but is desperately starving. And we need to get alongside of people, including ourselves, and recognize the real hunger that lies underneath. Let me give you one other cost of gluttony. And this one you might not have thought about, but it's injustice. Injustice. I remember overhearing a conversation between two non-Korean people talking about the Grand Victoria Casino Buffet, the riverboat in Elgin that has an amazing buffet. And the reason they're talking about it is, dude, they have all-you-can-eat crab legs. Okay? I'm listening. I'm like, keep talking. I'm like, booking my reservation. He goes, it'd be awesome except for one thing, the Koreans. I'm like, uh-uh. I'm Korean. I'm I'm really listening now. He goes, yeah, these Koreans are like vultures. They hover with two or three empty plates right around the crab bin. And as soon as the server dumps the new batch, they load up two or three plates to heaping. Absolutely zero consideration for others. And they bring those like greedy little burglars. They bring that home to their table and they serve themselves. And everyone's like, you could have left at least two or three little ones for us. And the worst part is after they've unloaded, they come back. There's always a crab runner at every Korean table. And their job is to just hover like a vulture and that server could barely get the legs. Now, that's a stupid story, but it just reminds me that gluttony at the heart of it is selfish. It's selfish not because you hate other people, but because you disproportionately love you. It's that feeling of worry at a a party when they bring out your favorite food. But it it reminded me of this. I, I was in Indonesia eating lunch with a bunch of refugees who had become Christians. Guys who had been starving in Afghanistan, and now we're feeding them. And the host pastor didn't know how to order food. There were eight men at this lunch, and he ordered, we're at Pizza Hut okay, in Indonesia, he orders two pizzas. <clears throat> You're stupid. <laughs> so I'm like, why would you do that? These guys are hungry. And the thing is, pizza's my favorite food. So I was very distracted trying to have a conversation with these guys. I'm like, I want to eat more than one piece, but I'm looking and doing the math. And I felt like there's a spirit in me that wanted to grab three slices right away and load up my plate, especially of the pepperoni. Because pepperoni pizza is proof of God's existence. <laughs> it is for me anyway. So I could eat pepperoni pizza every day. You don't understand. I could eat it every day. And I watched these guys scoop up the pepperoni pizza and I was getting an anxiety attack. So I'm still, I finally just go, Andrew, I can't take you anymore. I'm ordering three more pizzas. I'll pay for it. And he's like, oh, is it not enough? I'm like, come on, man. Eight men. It's that feeling of like concern because I want the good stuff and it's all going to be taken. Gluttony at the heart is selfish because it wants to take care of my need above anything anyone else needs right now. It's not that I hate you. I just don't have room in my heart to love you because I'm very busy loving me. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And while the main point of that story is about afterlife and about evangelism, one interesting element of the story is that this rich man ate contentedly until he was full, in full view of a beggar who longed to have the scraps that fell off his table. That's an obscene, vulgar scene for me. When I think about it, when I picture the scene in the movie, I'm offended by it. Until I realize that I actually identify more with the rich man than the beggar. When's the last time you were actually hungry against your will? Oh, you don't understand. Yesterday, between lunch and dinner, I was starving. Come on. 
starving, we say. This man ate until he was full in the face of another man's desperate need, and it didn't seem to move him. The thing about gluttony is that it focuses you so much on your satisfaction, you begin to grow blind and numb to the needs of others around you. As Americans, we waste 30 to 40% of our food supply. That's why it cracks me up to see people super couponing and, and hemming and hawing about, should I buy meat at this price? It's cheaper at Costco. Just buy it at full price. You're going to throw 30% of it away anyway. Why are you wringing your hands over saving 5% at the cash register? When you take that cash, why not just burn half of it and buy less groceries? That's effectively what we're doing all the time. Think about how casually we throw away uneaten food. I trained my kids from when they were little. Can I be done is not a question. You are done when you're done. There's no can I be done. It's like, are you? No, you're not done. Finish. When we give you food, it's to be eaten. You don't, and again, that's why portion control matters because if you keep it on and you make them finish, that's not a gift. We Americans throw away 150 tons of uneaten food every day. And yet, 8,500 kids die of hunger each day. And listen to this. You're like, well, so what? Am I supposed to send them my sandwich? Well, relax. You don't have to go all the way across the world to do something. Do you realize that 40 million Americans struggle with hunger? That you can actually do something about today. There are, there are organizations, nonprofits like Feed America, where at the very least in our own backyard, there shouldn't be hunger in this country. And yet there is. That's an embarrassment to us, an indictment of us as a people, that while we throw away 30 to 40% of our food supply in our own country, 15 million households are what they call food insecure. Food insecure means that there's not enough food consistently for every member of that family to eat adequately. And so parents are making sacrifices for children. Older siblings are making sacrifices for younger ones or for the elderly. Those are the realities that so many families in America, 15 million families, have to live with those kinds of restrictions and limitations while we throw away seven football stadiums full of uneaten food every year. That should bother us because in our gluttony and overconsumption is a built-in injustice that we can so easily grow numb to and we shouldn't be. I got to finish here. So let me finish with the remedy for gluttony. You've noticed this has been a pattern for this series as I'm trying to describe what it is, tell you what it costs us, and at least give you one recommendation for how to do battle if you care, how to actually fight this. We have a saying in America you can't have too much of a good thing. Only a country of gluttons would come up with a saying like that. You can't have too much of a good thing. Yeah, you can. You totally can. In fact, you do. That's, that's the American model. It should be our national anthem. Give me more. If gluttony is consumption out of control, then one sure way to do battle against the heart of gluttony is to control consumption on purpose. I want to suggest to you that fasting is not just a way to bribe God to get something you're serious about. We usually fast when we really want something. Fasting is about getting more of a specific thing. That shows you, in a way, the posture of selfishness that runs in our hearts is we fast only when I'm going to give up this because I want something even more important. But fasting is also a really powerful way to learn how to want less. And as middle-class Americans, the truth is we almost never have to control consumption unless we want to. When's the last time hunger was imposed on you against your will? Years ago, I told you that the, in, in, in a sermon about how I preached in a rural place in middle America, and the person who picked me up from the airport at 8 p.m. didn't ask me if I had ch- a chance to eat, didn't offer to stop, and I just kind of decided I'll just let the Lord take care of me. There's usually a speaker's basket. There was none at this retreat, and so... I'm stuck in this room, starving, and there's nothing to eat. The cafeteria is closed. This is in Podunksville. I won't name the state, but there's no place open. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to bed hungry. And I thought, when's the last time 
I had to go to bed hungry against my will. And I couldn't remember the last time. I live in a 24-7 world. I can have every hunger satisfied within 10 minutes of feeling it. And so I went to bed hungry. Well, I was going to, and then I actually ventured out because I was too hungry. I find a, an open gas station, and I bought Snickers bar and some Skittles. <laughs> they only had red. Here are some of the benefits of fasting, and I'll just quickly run through these. It actually rebuilds the capacity for true pleasure. When you're snarfing, you're not tasting, you're not savoring. In fact, the more you take in of something, the less you have the ability to actually savor and enjoy it. Fast for 24 hours, okay? And the next day, a saltine cracker looks like steak. You're like, have they always been this delicious? This flowery and salty and heavenly? And you're like, it's a saltine cracker. But you savor it because denying yourself actually ramps up the ability to sense things. That's the irony, the thing we don't understand, the paradox, is when you overdo it, you deaden yourself. You numb yourself. But when you say no, then the next time you say yes, every nerve ending is firing. I think that's one of the things God wants us to rediscover is the gift, the love we feel from him by savoring the things he gives rather than glutting on them. It also reveals our deeper hunger. Like I said, human hunger is finite, and when you keep filling the lesser hunger, it's really hard to become aware of the deeper hunger. When I fast for more than a day, that physical hunger constantly reminds me of my need, my incompleteness, my emptiness, and eventually God always uses fasting to point my mind towards the deeper hungers that have always rested underneath. The fears I'm trying to ignore, the grievances, the offenses I'm trying to forget, the worry that I have that dominates my life. And some of you need to hear this. Your whole life is driven by worry. Fear is what explains every choice you make. I'm going to do this because I'm afraid of fill in the blank. And yet you never really address the fear that has become your idol. You're enslaved to fear, to worry. And fasting awakens us. God uses it to say, do you see how afraid you are of everything? And how much that reveals that you don't really believe I have your back. That I'll protect your kids, I'll protect you, I'll protect your home. It awakens us to the yearnings we have for meaning and worth that we often ignore just by glutting on food or entertainment. It also reminds us of our dependence on God. You know, every day when I feel hungry, I feed myself. Jeannie loves how low maintenance I am because I don't even require her to make, I just grab something out of the fridge or the pantry and most days I will just feed myself and I like the control of that because then I feed when I need. Do you like that? I feed whenever I need. And so most days, I am my own provider. I'm peckish. I will peck. So I go to the pantry. I graze and I come back and I sit at my desk. And I am the arbiter of that. I am the one who controls that. I am the gatekeeper of satisfaction and provision for myself. And it starts to build up this idea in my head that I take care of me. But when I fast... I voluntarily cede control. I'm no longer free to eat when I want, what I want, how I want. I gave that up intentionally, and I'm constantly reminded of it. Just like Alan said, he told Vicky to lead, and then he regretted it right away. Every time I fast, the, within the hour, I regret, oh, I shouldn't have, maybe I should have made it so public. Maybe I should have told the church I'm fasting, because I really want a cheeseburger from McDonald's right now. Do you get what I'm saying? Yet when I fast and I don't have the ability to provide for myself because I gave that up, God uses it again and again to remind me that he is the one who meets my needs. I'll give you one last thing. It raises my compassion for others. You know, you can't really shed a tear for the hungry if you haven't been hungry. And can I just tell you that... that Spike of hunger between lunch and dinner is not really hunger. 
It's a pang. Don't call that hunger. It's belittling to the hungry. It's belittling to people who have to live with that. And the hard part of hunger is not just the emptiness in your stomach, but the helplessness, the powerlessness, the loss of dignity that comes with not being able to feed that hunger. To see your children hungry and have nothing to offer is not just physically trying, it challenges the heart. And it's really hard to feel compassion when what they're feeling, I've never felt. Do you realize the word compassion literally translates to suffering with? Suffering with. Do you know that's why it was called the passion of the Christ? It wasn't about his passion for let's go. It was his suffering. That's what passion means. And compassion means that I suffer with you. I don't just commiserate, sympathize. I've felt what you felt. I've worked hard at trying to identify with you. I love when he did that prisoner for a day thing. I think that's the kind of exercise that causes us to open our hearts. It doesn't just make us open. It opens our hearts for us. It makes us identify experientially with something that we normally can only imagine. I stay up late at night. And if I ever turn on the TV, I will within an hour see an image of a starving child. And unless I've recently felt real hunger, my heart will not really break for that image I see. I might feel guilt, but I won't feel compassion until I feel a little of what they feel. And I believe God uses fasting to fight directly against the self-centeredness of gluttony. I started off this week studying for this message thinking, surely this isn't me. And I ended the week realizing it is absolutely me. I want to confess to you as your pastor that I have a glutton's heart. I'm so thankful I married a woman who reminds me to set limits. I know I don't always reward you for reminding me, but I need you to keep doing that. I have a greedy, gluttonous heart. And I suspect, given the national stats, so do many of you. Why don't we just bow now and just, let's respond to God in our own words. If you need to repent, that's the place to start. And if you need to make a commitment to do something, this is a time to do it. So I want to give you a minute just to settle things with the Lord. Respond to him the way you need to right now. We'll end with a song and I'll close us in a benediction. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.